Heavenly Father, we, we thank you this morning that today we can come to you and praise you in the name of Jesus. It is, it is our honor and our privilege to come before you this morning as a people who have been graced. We have received your favor, not based on our works, but on the completed work of Christ and Christ alone. That is what now brings us into your favor. We don't obtain your favor by our worship. It is, it is truly, I pray this morning, a, a response in our hearts to what you've provided for us in Christ. I, I pray this morning that you would examine our hearts, that we would examine our own hearts. And Holy Spirit, that you would, you would convict us of any wrong motive for being here this morning. I pray that you would help us to, to recognize that this morning we are here to rejoice because of Christ. We're not here just to bring forth some exercise of religion, some ritual, some form. But we are here in response. Let us remember that in response to Christ's work, we can rejoice. We can sing praises to a holy God, though we in and of ourselves are not holy. We sing praises to you in in the righteousness of Christ. And, and that is a privilege. That is an honor that you have bestowed to us. And we thank you for that. We thank you and ask you to bless that, the hearing and the reading and the preaching of your word today as we celebrate the grace we've been given in Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Beginning in, in the Gospel of Mark, in, in Mark 2... There, there is a, a central theme, a constant theme that will follow Jesus all the way to the cross. And you'll even see the theme that I'm talking about even displayed on the cross as Jesus is dying for our sins. Whenever, whenever you see Jesus infiltrate and touch the lives of sinful men, there is always this response. There is always the response of rejoicing and resentment. We see that in Mark. It begins in Mark chapter 2, and you see it in verses 18 and 19. There is rejoicing and resentment that's displayed in chapter 2 consistently, and it will follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Whenever you see Jesus proclaim the good news from God that, that God accepts sinners based on His grace and His grace alone, not on human efforts or rituals or works. There is always the response of rejoicing and resentment. Feasting and fasting. That's what you see going on here. If you'll turn with me to Mark 2, beginning in verse 13. And we'll read down to verse 19. And this morning is really more of an introduction to this text rather than an exposition of this text. Beginning in verse 13, we begin to see both rejoicing and resentment. We see feasting and fasting. Hear the word of the Lord in verse 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching them. And as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and He said to him, Follow Me. And He rose and followed Him. And as He reclined at table in His house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, 
John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I'll submit to you that they should only rejoice. But the religious don't rejoice. They resent this. That's what we see going on here. I mean, look at verse 18. After this great display of grace to a tax collector, and this this exposing statement of Jesus that says, no one's righteous, you're all unrighteous, you all need me as a physician. These people come to him and they ask a veiled question. This question is not a sincere question. This this is probably a, a veiled question here. It's not as if they just want to know the facts. It's more of an accusation. Why do they ask this question in verse 18? Why do the people ask this? I think... I would submit to you, I think they asked this out of religious resentment. You see, like priests, like people, the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders of this day resented Jesus' ministry, His message of grace. They resented Him and they exhibited their own form of religion that said this is righteous and He is not. And the people noticed this. I think religious resentment is at the heart of what drove them to pursue him to the cross. And even there on the cross, you see the two thieves. One who is resenting grace, the other who is receiving grace. This is what happens because of man's depravity. We want to earn God's favor through our duties, through our efforts. And we find it offensive that God would actually accept us based on His promise and someone else's work unless He regenerates us and allows us to see that. And that's exactly what happens here with Levi. Levi's just rejoicing. He's just a happy man because he knew that he did not bring anything to God but his sinful life. God owed him nothing but wrath. But instead, he received grace. Therefore, he responded with worship, with joy. He didn't fast He feasted. That's what you see happening throughout the story of the gospel. When people receive God's grace, they feast on His mercy. But the attitude of religious resentment goes way back before the time of Jesus, before Jesus arrived. It goes back over 400 years before Jesus arrived. It takes us all the way back to a warning that we find in Malachi. If you would, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi. It shouldn't be hard. It's to the left, just a couple of books. The last book in the Old Testament. Last book in this order of the Old Testament. Malachi, just let me give you a little bit of background. Malachi was dealing with the very issue that is now full-blown in the time of Christ. It was beginning in Malachi's day, and it would progress through 400 years of silence between Malachi and John the Baptist. Malachi was the last prophetic voice that Israel heard, and he warned against religious resentment. Again, there was 400 years of silence that followed this writing of Malachi's work here. And there was no other word from God that came to the people of Israel until John the Baptist stepped on the scene to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus. And we need to understand something about John's disciples there in Mark's gospel. John's disciples that are spoken of there are quite possibly the same kind of men that are spoken of in Acts 19. Men who followed John, but not necessarily followed Jesus. See, John told his disciples to follow the Lamb of God, But not all of them did, and it's obvious in Acts 19. Not all of John's disciples were Christians. Turn with me to Acts 19. Keep your finger there in Malachi. Go to Acts 19 quickly, though, to see this. This is important in, in background here of understanding 
what was going on. Even in John's disciples, there was a sense of resentment because they were following tradition. They were holding to John's tradition instead of turning to the Messiah. We see that here in Acts 19.1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, some learners, some mathetes. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. Now, just mark this. All Christians, all believers, receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration. So this answer here that they give actually reveals that they were not born again. No, they said, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. They were following his tradition. And Paul said, okay, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Then it says in verse 5, on hearing this, that Jesus was who they were supposed to turn to. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands, his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Those men, before Jesus was proclaimed to them, before they understood who they were to turn to after turning in repentance away from their sin, they held to a form of religious asceticism, following John's tradition. He was an ascetic. He segregated himself from the world. He lived differently. He, he separated himself in many physical ways. And they were following his traditions. They would fast following after John's tradition. Maybe they were even fasting because John was in prison at the time of Mark 2. But tradition and religion, that's all part of our fallen condition. It's all part of what we want to do as fallen creatures to try to appease God, to get His favor. And when Paul confronts them, he says, turning in repentance wasn't sufficient. You need to turn to Jesus. Trust in Him when you turn away from your sins. He was the one who paid the penalty for you. Don't trust in a tradition. And that's really what Malachi, if you go back to Malachi with me, Malachi it comes to the people of God in the Old Testament to warn them about this, to warn them about religious ritualism, religious formalism. Again, Malachi was the last messenger of God, the last one they would hear for 400 years, and he warned them about religious formalism. During this time period that followed, right after Malachi, in this 400 years of silence, a religious sect rose up, and that sect was the sect of the Pharisees. That's when they came into existence. They came into existence for a good reason, though. They feared that the law of God would be lost during this time period. No one was there to preach the Word. So, the Pharisees rose up to guard the law of God during this 400 years of silence. But sadly, the way they guarded it was by saying that it's not sufficient to stand on its own. We need to add something to it. We need to set up more perimeters, more fences, more guards around the law. So they made man-made traditions to protect God's law. One of the traditions that they added to the law was the tradition of routine fasting. Fasting was only commanded to the people of God one time, on one day, the Day of Atonement. That's the only fast that is commanded. All other fasting was to be from the heart, an act of worship, an act of reliance, an act of faith in God to provide. But the Pharisees made it a ritual, a requirement, a way to get God to act. And we have to watch against this ourselves when we pray. When we pray, we're not trying to get God to act. We're responding because God has acted in His Son on our behalf. And now we can come before a holy God and petition Him, knowing that He cares for us ultimately in sending forth His Son to provide our sacrifice, to pay our penalty. Therefore, we can trust Him to care for all of our needs in light of the grace He's given us. Prayer isn't to be a routine ritual. It is to be a response of rejoicing of the heart because we've received grace, not to obtain grace. 
in, in Malachi's time and in Jesus' time, especially in Jesus' time, religious formalism had affected everyone in Israel. It started with the priest and worked down into the people. And that's what Mark 2 is dealing with. It had affected the people, the people who had came to Jesus and asked this question. It had affected deeply the Pharisees or the spiritual leaders, and they in turn affected the people. During Malachi's day and in Mark's day, the people had grown calloused against God, calloused to God's love. They didn't feel God's love. They actually just formalized God's love in their rituals. They didn't feel their sin either. They were callous to their own sin, callous to God's love, and consequently, they lacked reverence for God when it came to worshiping Him. That's what you see the Pharisees doing when you read Mark 2, 16 and 17. When they see this great and glorious act of God's grace toward Levi, the outcast, the pagan, what do they say? Do they say, rejoice, God's promises to the nations, to the, to the lost, to the world are coming to pass because even this Goyim lover is being saved. No, they didn't do that. They resented the grace that Levi received. They resented the rejoicing. They resented the feasting. They resented Jesus for saying that their works weren't good enough, that God would have to provide something that they couldn't bring to him on their own, which is his favor Inwardly, the Pharisees in Jesus' time and the priests in Malachi's time were full of resentment, but ironically, they were worshiping God externally. And this is a warning for us as Christians today. What drives us to worship Jesus? Do we just do it because it's duty? It's required? That's what you do on Sundays, it's the Lord's Day. Or are we actually driven here because of the grace we've received in response to Jesus, in response to His mercy, in response to His sacrifice? I pray that's the case. I pray that we will always come to worship Him in prayer, in song, in hearing and reading of His Word, in a response to His grace, not to obtain it. You know, coming here each Sunday doesn't make God love you more. It doesn't. He is never going to love you more than He loves you in Christ. Christ, He performed all the righteous acts that were necessary to bring God's love and favor to you. You can't improve on that. You can't add to grace. You'll only detract from it. The attitude that was exhibited in Mark was promoted here in Malachi from the priests downward. That's what we're going to look at in just a moment. We're going to to look in Malachi. We're going to read the first, let's see, 1, 6 through 14 in just a moment. What happened here, what this, this corrective is for is these, these priests were misrepresenting God, His nature. They misrepresented Him and it caused the people to respond to this misrepresentation with discouragement and with resentment. They no longer saw God as a loving Father or a good, caring Master. They began to see Him as a cruel dictator, a cruel, harsh Father. And that resulted in resentment. And it also resulted in this kind of dreary fasting that you see the Pharisees exhibiting in the New Testament, where they would actually look all disheveled and moan and groan publicly because they were fasting because God laid this heavy burden on us. He is so hard on us. He wants us to fast. He wants us to be miserable. So they walked through the cities moaning and groaning and looking dirty and like God had weighed them down with a burden. That's the only way they can intercede for the people. They made God look like a hard taskmaster instead of actually responding to Him out of thankfulness for His care of us as a good Father. We need to always think about how we reflect to the world our love for our Father. Do we talk about church? Do we talk about worship? Do we talk about service as if it's God really wants me to do it? God wants me to do it. It's so hard. I don't know. And the world sees that and they see someone who resents this God who called them. But instead, we need to be thinking about this privilege we have to gather in Jesus' name and worship Him. 
We, the people who have been outcast like Levi, we, the people who have been separated by our sin, are now called together in Christ, forgiven, granted a righteousness that is not our own, so that we can serve Him with joy and not with resentment. I think that's what the people in Mark's day needed to understand, that they couldn't apart from God opening their eyes. That's why Jesus came. But here in Malachi and in Mark's time, we can see one thing. We can see this stand out. We see that resentful men, number one, despise God's name. Resentful men will despise God's name in their actions. They actually resent His authority to direct them. They resent His ownership of them. And here's how they respond. Look with me in Malachi 1, 6-14. And this is right after God speaks to them and says, I have loved Jacob. I've set my love on this nation. And then he says, here's how you respond to me. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear or reverence? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? See, they they had grown calloused. So calloused that when they come to approach God and God now comes to approach them, they say, I don't get it. We're doing everything you said. What do you mean we despised your name? We're obeying all the rules, the rituals, the forms. How do you mean this? And God tells them. Verse 7. How do you despise my name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table was or may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. If you despise God's name, no amount of effort, no amount of ritual, no amount of worship on your part will be blessed by God, will be accepted by God. If you're doing it strictly out of ritual, out of resentment, to appease God. God's going to tell them, I've already chosen you. I've already picked you out. I've already provided a promise to you and you despise my grace. You despise me so much that you bring defiled sacrifices to me and you want me to bless you? Like I owe you something? Verse 12, he says, or verse 11, he says, oh, I'll bless someone. He's going to make it clear. Someone's going to be blessed. It won't be the religious. It'll be those who need grace. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is to offer sacrifices. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished 
For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name, my name will be feared among the nations. The judgment upon these people brought us great grace. These people, the people who decided that God could be appeased, God could be appeased by their works, their efforts, God says, I will not accept that, but the one that I will accept, the one I will accept is the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my name. The one who knows that he is outside the covenant. The one who knows he is not in this nation. The one who knows that he deserves nothing but my wrath and judgment. That's the one I'll turn to. The one that I'll send my son to die for are those who know they can't bring an offering to me. They know there's nothing good in their hands that they can bring and simply to the cross they cling. That's the one that will not receive the curse, but they will receive the blessing, the favor of God. God hates human effort. It says that Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. The irony of this is those who have received His grace will give their entire life and all their efforts to rejoicing in Christ. And that brings sweet aroma and praise to God in heaven. And that's what God is trying to teach these people. We understand there was a remnant in Israel that were truly Israel, truly elect. But not all of Israel is Israel. Yet there is a people of God that God has given a promise to And those people are the ones who come to him with their hands outstretched as beggars saying, nothing in my hands can I bring you but my sin. I need your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. Those are the ones who receive it because God initiated it. God brought it to them in Christ. In Malachi and in Mark, we learn that when God's name is shamed or despised through ritual rule-keeping as if that can actually appease God or that God requires something harsh of them that they can't do on their own and He's burdening them. When they despise His name, it leads to resentment. Ritualism leads to resentment. We can never appease God. We can never do enough to make God satisfied with our life. And we all know that. But those who actually believe they can build up this resentment in their hearts toward God where they fight against Him. They, they do their duty, they grit their teeth, and they worship God. And that is not the result of a regenerated heart. That's the heart of someone who believes they can obtain salvation by human effort. God forbid that would ever be the case with any of us here. We must come to Him in faith, trusting in His promise that is given to us in Christ that Jesus did everything that was required. Trusting in Christ and Him alone so that we can rejoice in God's favor, not try to obtain it through our efforts. That's what I think we see happen throughout the rest of the gospel in Mark. These religious people follow Jesus just like they followed Paul from city to city, hounding Him, resenting this message of grace, saying, what about circumcision? What about fasting? What about this? What about that? And Jesus says, I am here with the good news from God. I alone will be humble and contrite and tremble at God's name so that when you trust in me, you will find favor. You will find God's blessings. When you come to Mark 2, you see this resentment focused on fasting. These people come to him. Why do John's disciples and these scribes, these Pharisees' disciples, why do they they fast and you don't? I mean, come on. Isn't there something wrong here? And Jesus is saying, look, guys, don't resent me because they have found that in my presence there is joy and freedom. Instead, turn to me and quit trusting in your righteousness, in your works, and rejoice. The bridegroom is here. The fulfillment of all truth and law is here. 
if they don't do this, if they don't trust in Him, if people don't turn to Him, it will produce improper worship because they have an improper view of God. They think of God as one who says, here are rules, keep them. If you keep them, I'll show you some favor. And that improper view of God will result in an improper view of worship, improper acts of worship. So they fasted with wrong motives. They fasted to appease God, to move God. The resentment affected their worship. Why you worship ultimately matters. Why you're here this morning matters. Why are we here? Are we here to keep God's favor, obtain God's favor, or are we here to rejoice in God's favor that came to us in Christ? I believe that's why we're here. They didn't see that in Mark's day. They didn't see that in Malachi's day. Understand something about fasting. Fasting is something we should still do today, but not out of a routine, not out of a pastor's command, not out of a priest's command. It is to be the reflection of the heart. When you hear about a need, a burden, a situation, honestly, I think fasting flows out of that. I think fasting is just natural out of that. When you know you have a lost loved one and they're about to perish, they're about to die, you really want to sit down and have a big meal and enjoy life? What do you typically do? You don't want to eat. You want to concentrate and you want to think and you want to pray to God. You want to intercede. That's when fasting becomes worship. It's an act of trust. It's a, it's a response of the heart that says, I'm broken over what's happening and I can't do a thing about it. I must call upon God and trust Him for it. Then there'll be time for feasting. We can feast on the truth. God hears those who are humble and contrite and come before Him, thanking Him, trusting Him because of Christ. Christ opens the door of prayer for us. We could not come before a holy God had Christ not went before that throne in our place and interceded for us. But He has now opened that up to us so that we're not resentful. Hopefully we'll, we'll be rejoiceful when we come to Him. Now, go back with me to, to Malachi 1.7. In Malachi and Mark both, we learn that resentful men not only despise God's name, but secondly, they worship God in vain. It says that in 7, seven and 8. They worship God in vain by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. It's basically what he's saying here is, by your actions, you're showing resentment and disgust toward me by the kind of acts that you're bringing to me, by the kind of actions, the kind of sacrifices you bring. Verse 8, he says, Here, here's how you despise me. Here's how it's obvious that you despise me. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Present that to the president. Present that to your boss. Will he accept you and show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? I mean, they despised God so much. They resented God so much for laying these burdens, but they perceived as burdens upon their heart because they were unregenerate. They weren't responding in faith. They, they viewed him so wrongly that they would actually bring these defiled sacrifices to him on the altar as if, dude, we're doing you a favor, God. We're giving you stuff. That's what you said. You wanted stuff. Here it is. Take it. We're doing our duty now. Bless us. That's the attitude that's going on here. That was the attitude of Israel all the way through the time of Jesus. We've done all the stuff. Why isn't he blessing us? And Jesus says, trusting in your righteousness will bring God's judgment. But trusting in him would bring God's joy and peace and freedom. I mean, they, won't even, they wouldn't even bring these kinds of sacrifices to a human king or a governor but they'd bring them before God. Because that just shows you the depth of their resentment. Ritualism, formalism, sacerdotalism will do nothing but build up resentment in the heart of those who know they can't appease God. And they'll try and try and try and they'll be so disgusted that they'll just give a half-hearted effort because that's all they have because their heart is dead. 
They have not trusted in him. In Malachi, we see that. We see that and we see, in verse 9, we see God's reaction to that. It's very, very clearly. He says, and this is, this is divine sarcasm from God. And now, now you brought me this filthy sacrifice as if I'm blind and don't exist. You treat me like a pagan God. And now, entreat the favor or the grace of God that he may be gracious to us. That's what they're saying. With such a gift from your hand, will he show grace to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. And verse 10 says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. This is very clear. God is saying, I reject all worship. All worship, all acts of rituals, all, all human effort that comes from a defiled, resentful heart. I reject it. Matter of fact, he says, I, I, wish, I wish someone would go shut the doors to the temple. Stop, cease, desist. Don't do this anymore. It's, it's so bad, no sacrifices would be better. And church, when, when we come before God, when people who profess faith in Christ come before Him, moaning and groaning and resenting their service to God, God would rather shut the doors to the church than have us gather. He wants us coming, though. I believe like we want to come this morning. Not resentful, but rejoicing. That we can now enter into His presence and we can now worship Him with thanksgiving and feast on His love because of Jesus. Because Jesus brought God's favor to us. You see, all of us would be just like the people in Malachi's day. All of us, apart from God's grace. All of us would try to obtain God's favor through our efforts, and we've all tried that before we were converted. We tried it by being a good old boy or girl. You tried it by being religious apart from Christ. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But God in His great grace and love sent Jesus to do what we could not do. Jesus came to offer up proper worship from the heart in obedience. He revered God for us. He brought all the things that God required to us and said, they're yours. Receive this. Look what Isaiah 66 says, No amount of human effort, no amount of human works or righteousness or rituals can bring us favor with God. But what Jesus did has brought us grace from God. Look what it says here. 66.1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But he says, look, look, you can't do enough for me. You can't build me a nice enough place. You can't provide anything for me that I don't already own. But here's what I'm looking for. But this is the one to whom I will look. In other words, I'll show favor to this one. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's Jesus. And if you have trusted in him, that's your response to Jesus, to God. You are now humble. You come before him broken over your sins. You come over to him and say, I am broken. I am unable to overcome these things. I need your forgiveness. I've sinned against you and you alone. And you tremble at His authority, at His power, at His grace. And you come before Him with thanksgiving as a result. That's the only way that we can come before God. That's the only way that God receives us. It's by this one who was humble, contrite, and revered God. Verse 3 says, Nothing we can do can do this. Only Christ. It says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. In other words, you can give a big sacrifice, an important sacrifice, but it's as if you just killed a person. 
if it's not in faith. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. Well, this is getting worse. This is getting worse. You're bringing offerings to me that the pagans bring because your heart is not humble, contrite, and trembling at my word. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Now just keep in mind, he's speaking to Israel. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. The Lord, in verse 4, would not delight in their works. He could not delight in their works because they chose not to delight in his promise. Therefore, they receive his judgment. His punishment comes upon them. There is no rejoicing in their hearts. There is only resentment in their offerings. And that's, that's not the case for us who are in Christ. For us who are in Christ... We come before God because of Jesus' offering. We come rejoicing, not resentful. Look what Romans 5 has to say about that. Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1 says, here's how we come before God. Here's how we come and offer to God worthy praise. Therefore, since we have been declared right, we have been justified. By faith. And if this is a sola fide moment. This is faith alone. You're declared right in God's sight truly and only because of your trust in what He has provided, what He has granted. He is the one who granted you the trust to begin with. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The removal of enmity, the removal of God's hostility toward us. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not hold back the wrath. God did not hold back the enmity. Did He not hold back the punishment that we deserved? No. He poured it out on His own Son so that His sacrifice would satisfy God's wrath in our place so that we would now have peace based on God's provision in Christ. Verse 2 says, through Him, Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and what? Not resent. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Wait a second. More than that, (laughs) we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait a minute. They're not even resentful of suffering for Jesus' sake? No, they're rejoicing. You see, because they know that their suffering doesn't try to appease God. It's, it's actually an act of worship to God out of thanksgiving that they've been set apart by God, different from the world. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame because God's love has been, past tense, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given as a grace act to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No, he didn't die for us because we were self-righteous and we had our own righteousness. No, he died for us because we had no righteousness. We were actually at war with God. We hated God. We were sons of disobedience, sons of Satan. And yet Jesus died for us at that moment 
since, he says in verse 9, therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, brought into God's favor, reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, just notice all the more thans here. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The people in Mark 2 and the people in Malachi needed reconciliation. We need reconciliation. And in Malachi, the promise of the blessing is not to the religious, but to those who would be reconciled in Christ Jesus. Those who would be reconciled would be the ones that God turns to to glorify His name. He turns to the nations. He turns to us by His grace so that we could be reconciled and we could rejoice. There is no condemnation in Christ and there is no resentment either. There is rejoicing in the heart. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we don't have to fast to obtain God's favor. And that's why we can feast because we've received it in Christ. Malachi shows us this. Malachi shows us what those people in Mark 2 needed to understand. That a right relationship with God is not based on religious rituals or human works. It's based on God's initiating grace. And it's completed in the work of His Son. Go with me back to Malachi 1.11. Here, here's the promise that should just overwhelm us as we rejoice this morning. For from the rising of the sun to its setting... God will get His glory. That's what He's going to say. I will get my glory from a people. From a people who will testify to my name. Give thanks for my name. Give thanks for my provisions. He says, To the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering. Not a defiled offering. See, True worship comes out of a transformed heart. A heart that was stony and dead, that has been invigorated, that has been regenerated, that has been given life, now rejoices. It it pumps and it pulses with the blood and the grace of God. It pumps out praise and thanksgiving. That's what a regenerated heart produces. It's not resentment. It's rejoicing. And he says, For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus made this promise come to pass. Jesus provided this sacrifice that allowed us to offer up pure offerings to God today as we rejoice as Christians. That's what Malachi is telling us. True worship will flow from those who have received God's grace, trusted in God's promise. And that promise was completed in Christ. That's what the Old Testament says we're to look to. That's what we look back to. We trust that God would provide one who would do what none of us could do. None of us even gathered together could do on our own. Jesus could accomplish completely at the cross of Calvary by offering up a pure sacrifice and appease God for our sins at the same time so that we could rejoice and not have resentment because we can't ever earn God's favor. Look at the result of trying to earn God's favor in Malachi. Malachi 1, 12. Here we see that both Malachi and Mark are teaching us the same thing, that resentful worship will lead to God's judgment. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. It doesn't matter what kind of offering. That's what he says. When you say it doesn't matter, you can despise it. It doesn't really matter what you bring to God. You you profane my 
table. You profane my holy presence. Malachi 1.13 says, But you say, What a weariness this is! And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? I mean, they despise God's glory so much. They they despised His glory to the the degree that they considered Him and His table and His presence unworthy of their efforts. But at the same time, though they despised His table, they still said, but give us what we want. We did your stuff. We did your rituals. Come on. We did it. We despised you in doing it, but we did it, and you owe us. That's not grace. They're looking for payment. God's going to give them payment. That's what it says in verse 14. Here's your payment. You try to buy my favor. You try to earn my favor. You try to work for my favor. And you know what you're going to get? You're going to get separation. You cannot on your own come before me. You cannot defile my name. You can't offer me up vain worship and expect me to bless you. Cursed be the cheat. That's a hard word. Damned be the cheat who has a male in, the, in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Cursed be you. Jesus was cursed on the cross for this. He was cursed on the cross for our sin. This is a serious accusation, a serious condemnation here. When God curses someone, it's serious. You bring me defiled worship, and you've severed yourself from me. You don't belong to me. You have misrepresented me. You misunderstand me. You have not trusted in me. You don't belong to me. I never knew you. That's what he's saying here. Just like Jesus said in Matthew. And he speaks to those people who said, Lord, Lord, we did all the stuff in your name. Jesus says, you're basing your presence in my presence as if it's based on your works. I never knew you. You think your presence here is contingent on how well you performed on the earth? Wrong gospel, not God's gospel. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Their religious works in the New Testament were just as defiled apart from God's grace, apart from Christ, as these works in the Old Testament. God says, I never knew you. But then he says this. There's a, not just a curse here in verse 14. There's also a promise. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and... My name will be feared, revered, honored among the nations. My name will be honored among the nations. If you refuse to honor my name and you resent me and you live in your unrepentance, it will produce God's judgment. But in that judgment, as God turns from these people who try to earn his favor He turns to those who know they cannot ever obtain His favor, and He graces them, and that's why we're here today. Let me show you where unrepentant resentment leads to in Mark's gospel. Go back with me to Mark 12. You want to get a glimpse of what religious people do when they resent God and His grace, if they do not repent of this? You want to see what they'll do? You want to see the extent of their resentment, and you see what it produces, it will produce God's judgment. Look what it did here. Look what it did here in Mark 12. Jesus is speaking here. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man, this man represents God, the Father. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants that would be Israel the Jews and went to another country when the season came he sent a servant that would be the old testament prophets he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard and they took him the prophets or the servants here and beat him And sent him away empty handed. And again, God sent to them another servant, another set of prophets. 
and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. You can see that their treatment of the prophets of God gets harsher and harsher and harsher all the way through this. You see, Israel began to think that now God owes them. They're doing their stuff, and now they they don't need some prophet to come along and rebuke them. God should just love them the way they are, accept them for what they're doing. Yet God in His mercy keeps sending prophets to confront them in their sin. And in verse 5 it says, And He sent another, and and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. That would be Jesus. Finally, God sent Jesus to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The very one who came to give them grace They murdered. They threw him out because they said, we have earned God's favor. God should bless us. And if you bring along this new, this new, (laughs) this new servant, we may not receive the blessing that we think we deserve. They threw him out. And how did God respond to that? What will the owner, verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others, the Gentiles. Have you not read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And notice immediately how the Pharisees perceived that this story is about them. And notice how they responded to Jesus in the exact fashion in which he said they would. Verse 12 says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. But eventually, they came after him, did they not? And eventually, they killed the heir, so that the inheritance would stay with them. Yet God in his grace through that judgment that he brought later on to Israel and the overturning of the temple and all of the rituals that could never be performed again, God brought to us in Christ the grace we needed to be forgiven as Gentiles. God's grace produced their judgment and our worship. It produced in us a contrite heart, an undeserving heart. We understand we have that before God like the people in verse 11. This is marvelous in our eyes that God would turn to us. These people here in 12, in this parable, they perceived God as this harsh taskmaster. And their resentful ritualism actually taught them to believe that God owed them something for their works. And God said, no, I owe you nothing except judgment. But unlike those people, those of us who have received God's grace, those of us who have recognized our sin guilt before God, we know that God owes us nothing, but we owe Him everything. We know that God owes us nothing but His wrath, and yet we've received His grace. Grace upon grace. The grace of salvation, the grace of the forgiveness of our sins, the grace of repentance, the grace of the church, the grace of the future in heaven, the grace of eternal life, all of it by grace. The favor of God through the perfections of Christ, that's what we receive in Him. That's what drove Levi and all those people in Mark 2 and Jesus' disciples not just to follow Jesus out of rituals, but they followed Him rejoicing. They followed Him rejoicing because now they were in the bridegroom's presence. They were feasting instead of fasting because they were with the King of glory. The God of all grace and mercy had made His presence known to them. And they responded 
not with weary worship, but with rejoicing and thanksgiving and obedience and reverence. Everything that Israel thought you could do on your own actually is a result of regeneration that comes through faith in Christ. Thankful worship always works that way. True worship always flows from a heart that has recognized God's grace that has been imputed to it, has been granted to it. God's grace should always produce rejoicing, not resentment. Feasting and not fasting. This morning, what I I think we ought to do as I end, I think we ought to reflect on the feast that is before us in Christ. The feast of God's grace that we receive. If you can pick up your New Testament and you can read this book and you know that your heart is being read by it, you know that God is convicting you of sin, you know that your heart is not turned into this inward sadness that says, I'll never ever obtain God's favor, but rather your heart is turned upward in thanksgiving to God for His Son's work in your behalf, you need to give thanks this morning because you can worship from the heart. You can rejoice. You can feast. You don't have to fast. You don't have to mourn. But if there's anybody here this morning that feels like fasting, if there's anybody here who's not sure that you have been graced by God's favor, given His favor, given forgiveness of your sins and repented of those sins and turned to His Son. If you feel like fasting this morning, I suggest you do so by calling upon Jesus and abstaining from your sin, turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Trust that God will provide for you what you need to forgive your sins in Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' work, not your own. You turn from and turn to. And we need to profess that to ourselves whenever we start feeling condemned. Remember, God has graced you. Turn away from this condemnation. Turn in faith to what Jesus has given us and rejoice and feast on that this morning. Let's pray that we'll do that today as a church as we proceed next week into the exposition in particular of Mark 2, 18-22. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that our standing before you is not based on our righteousness, our religious acts, our ritualism, but our standing before you is based on the work of your Son, Jesus. It's based on your favor toward us, favor we could never earn, favor we do not deserve, the favor that we so desperately need. And we, we want to reflect that in our attitudes, in our hearts. We want to reflect that in rejoicing. We want to reflect that in worshiping you and feasting upon your truth and not mourning all the day. Yes, Lord, we want to mourn over our sin, but as we do so, we need to remember the completed work of Christ that atoned for all our sins. And let that, I pray, be the meditation of our heart. Let that fill our minds so that we would not feel resentment when it comes to serving you, but rather we would rejoice in the act of worshiping you with our entire life as living sacrifices. We ask you to be honored and glorified through this church as we rejoice with one voice today in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus to me. 
Let us adore. 